All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. Hey everyone, Mike Kaprowski here. Hope you all have been enjoying the podcast lately. Uh, Chantel and I have been trading host duties to kind of keep things fresh, and so you you don't have to hear me yammering all the time. So uh, this way we can get a fresh perspective into the mix. So uh, in that spirit, for this podcast episode, we have another entirely different host. Uh, It's a really great episode. And we'll just keep shaking things up. So today it's about the history of the Fair Housing Act with Harvard professor Alexander von Hoffman. And we've turned over host duties to Sam Adams. Uh, Sam is an ongoing contributor to the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. He does all sorts of stuff for us. Uh, and we kept him on as a contributor after he worked with us as a summer associate uh, while he was uh, in grad school. So he's uh, Sam is currently at the Come to Believe Foundation, which is an organization working to scale a really innovative two-year college model for low-income kids who are often underrepresented at, at selective universities. Um, Sam started his career as a teacher and an education administrator, really focused on college readiness and, and family engagement, uh, and he did that work in Detroit. So he comes at this from a multi-sector perspective, uh, which is, of course, the theme of this podcast. Through his work in education, he's seen uh, that housing is just inextricably linked. So with that, uh, here's the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Our guest today is Dr. Alexander von Hoffman, who is an American urban historian. He is currently a lecturer in urban planning and design at the Harvard University Graduate School of Design and a senior research fellow at Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies. He received a PhD from the Department of History at Harvard. He's also the author of several books, including House by House, Block by Block, The Rebirth of America's Urban Neighborhoods, many scholarly works on housing, community development, and urban history. He recently authored a book chapter entitled The Origins of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, 
in Furthering Fair Housing, Prospects for Racial Justice in America's Neighborhoods, a volume that explores the past, present, and future of fair housing policies in the United States. His work is highly relevant to our focus on fair housing this month, and we are thrilled to have him. So uh, welcome, Dr. Van Hoff. Oh, it's my pleasure. So just to start, you have kind of this unique uh, background as this interdisciplinary mix of your historian, but also an expert in urban planning. So what led to your interest in those two fields and, and also to your interest in fair housing? Well, I guess I should start with my real background, my childhood. I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a time when it was a very exciting place to be. There was still the Great Migration was pushing into that, into the area, and it was a very vibrant and rich place uh, in which uh, issues of civil rights issues and issues of community self-determination were, were being worked out. I, I'm old enough to remember that. I'm old enough to remember uh, Dr. King's Chicago crusade. So that's kind of my background. Also, I'm, a, I'm very much a city boy and uh, love big cities, all of that. So uh, I came out to Boston and became interested in uh, pursuing an academic career. I got interested in history and wrote a history or began to write, I was at the University of Massachusetts in Boston at the time, the history of a Boston neighborhood. It's called Jamaica Plain. And I went on to finish that as part of my dissertation and then write a book. And what was interesting about it, uh, taking a neighborhood is I took many different dimensions of the development of that place, the physical development, but also the demographic. and. Uh, what was interesting about that neighborhood was how diverse it was. It was heterogeneous. When it was built up in the 19th century, it grew up with a kind of motley pattern. And so that, that very much interested me. It's also surrounded by some of the major parks in, in the Boston area. I didn't really want to start this to do parks, but I had all these parks, so I had to figure out what they were about. And that really led me into planning history, landscape architecture, how that fits into these larger schemes. So this all sort of keeps rolling. And um, I guess I should say that after I finished that book, I became interested in the history of low-income housing in the United States. I did diverge and wrote a book uh, about, which the title you mentioned, about community development, which is community-based activities to improve neighborhoods. And uh, I've been pursuing that ever since. So fair housing, well, it's part and parcel of the movement for low-income housing, but it's a particular wing of it, if you see what I mean. And it's very much part of planning and all of that. So I've been very interested in those issues. Great. Let's jump into your recent article, The Origins of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. The article, which I highly recommend to our listeners, takes a historical lens to understanding the dynamics that ultimately led to the Act's passage in the late 60s. So let's start in the early 20th century. At this time, segregation in many large American cities was driven by several mechanisms that you write about in the article. So what were these mechanisms and how did they contribute to segregation? Sure, but I think listeners should be aware, get those pulled back and understand the larger uh, forces at work. In the early 20th century, you have the, the, uh, the first great migration of African-Americans to large cities and even small cities, many of those cities being in the North, but not all of them. And that's along a path 
that migration of people is really very much part of America's urban history. And so you had, as I'm sure everybody knows, large numbers of immigrants in the 19th century as well had come into cities. And so you had, say, uh, on the Lower East Side, you had uh, area of um, Eastern European Jews you know, were heavily concentrated in Little Italy in New York as well. Right. And other cities had similar enclaves and uh, concentrations. So when you had a large number of African-Americans coming into cities, they too clustered in certain areas. The difference was that while there were a lot of, there was an awful lot of prejudice against the Irish Catholics, against Italians, so on, and that shouldn't be underestimated. It was very, it was outspoken at the time. There were more restrictions against African-Americans or the feelings were more intense. These uh, racist attitudes really are, are heightened. And I think that's important because the mechanisms you mentioned reflect those racist attitudes. And that means that as long as the racist attitudes were in place, the people would look to mechanisms, all right? So and when I say people, I mean white people. The other thing that's going on is the cities are growing. There seems to be something that goes on as the cities grew where people are unsettled and they want to kind of control their immediate area around where they live. You have to, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a whole sense of like, we need to get everything under control. Society is growing really fast. And so, the first mechanism is zoning. Now, zoning, ironically, was invented in Germany as a way to protect the outlying areas from being dominated by upscale development. They wanted to make sure that working class and middle class people uh, would get homes built as, the, as Berlin and these other cities grew out. And then it came to the United States and it was immediately transformed through a chemical process to uh, be used by property owners for their own uh, benefit. And so one of the things that occurs to people, property owners, white upper middle class Protestant property owners especially, was, well, while we're zoning, and controlling our environment, let's try racial zones. So they try and they begin to implement in a, in a few cities, Baltimore and Louisville, racial zoning. So the idea that African-Americans can live here and whites can live over there. I should say that on the ground, you had both enclaves like African-American neighborhoods as African-Americans poured in, but there were lots of areas that were mixed, especially as you got down to the working and lower classes, uh, all the other underclass groups, whether they were Irish or German or whatever they might be, were sort of mingled together. So the idea of racial zoning is to try to straighten this out. So the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Color People, had, was a new organization, and they be began to challenge in court these, uh, the racial zoning, and they actually win uh, case, which is quite, su quite surprising because the Supreme Court in, in those years had uh, ruled some rather horrendous uh, cases, uh, the chief one being uh, separate but equal. But in 1917, they outlaw, in a case about Louisville, Kentucky, they outlaw racial zoning. So that doesn't stop cities from trying it even so, 
but the NAACP now armed with this precedent was able to fight that off. Well, the Caucasians, as they sometimes call themselves, didn't want to stop there. Uh, so they said, all right, if we can't have the cities enforce the zoning, we will have private arrangements of property owners to do that. And so they come up with this, uh, well, they adapt the idea of the deed restriction. The deed restriction is an old, old measure that was used, oh, some, well, in some ways, an exclusionary way in Boston, um, the Back Bay, which is a fancy neighborhood, maybe some people know, uh, was developed with deed restrictions saying that you couldn't have factories and you couldn't have stables in this fancy area because they were, if you bought a, a, a lot, you couldn't, you couldn't have that. And so deed restrictions have been on the books for a while, and they've been used against various groups here and there. But it's in this case that they apply these uh, people begin to, especially as they build out, it's hard to do this when you have the city is already built out. But if they're building new areas, they applied these racial restrictions. They said, say, no, the property owner is uh, bound not to sell the property to a Jewish person or an African-American, something like that. And they were able to hold that in place for quite a while. I don't know if this is the time to mention it, but the deed restrictions were uh, pain and they were uh, certainly unjust and immoral. And finally, in 1948, the Supreme Court finds them unconstitutional. But they weren't completely affected. In other words, they were only affected, and this is true with all kinds of deed restrictions, as long as the property owners decide to abide by them. There's not, it gets particularly difficult when the property is sold to another party. In other words, in the first instance, uh, you have an empty lot and you can build a house and you have these restrictions. So are a bigoted person, so you say, fine, I'm not gonna uh, sell to uh, Jews or African-Americans, whatever, whatever the group. But then at some point, that person will then sell to another person. And after a while, uh, that person has no great commitment to this thing. That uh, um, So it really held up only as long as the whites who were property owners enforced and cooperated with them. So by the 1940s, Blacks inhabited large areas of Chicago and Los Angeles on in properties. They owned properties that had racial restrictive covenants on them designed to keep them out because the system had just broken down. And those kind of covenants in the face of large demand for housing would only work temporarily, which is not to say it wasn't painful for uh, people. And one of the well-known cases was the suit against uh, Lorraine Hansberry's father to say he shouldn't own the property he owned. And it consumed the poor man for years fighting off this lawsuit. And again, that neighborhood eventually became black, but it was, it was a burden on the family and inspired Lorraine Hansberry to write a masterpiece play, A Raisin in the Sun. So those are a couple mechanisms for you. So these mechanisms that you mentioned that were driving segregation were either municipal in scope in the case of racial zoning or took place at the level of individual households, such as with the racially restrictive covenants. But then in the 1930s, you have the first federal interventions in the housing market in response to the Great Depression as part of the New Deal. And the two biggest federal housing initiatives were either the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, or uh, the first public housing developments were built at this time. 
So how did these two new programs intersect with the racialized housing market in the United States that you described earlier? Right. And it's interesting. So those are the two large programs in the 1930s uh, having to and remember there was uh, tremendous numbers of foreclosures and so on and uh, so forth. So the New Deal, Roosevelt really took it as his responsibility to try to do something about the housing markets. At the same time, you had contingent of, of progressive, in the old sense, uh, reformers who pushed this idea that was popular in Europe of government-owned housing for the masses. There was the ideas for the working middle class was their idea. And so they are successful. And so the, the Federal Housing Administration is started. And it's what is its function is to provide insurance on mortgages, not to the buyer of a house, but to the lender of the, of the mortgage. All right. So that's their little entry point. And it was actually highly effective in loosening up the rules uh, up to that time. You had, you, if you took out a mortgage, it was very short term, five or 10 years, and then you had to pay the whole rest of the, of the payment of the mortgage. And so it was very difficult. People would sometimes uh, roll them over. But the FHA mortgage insurance gave the lenders, which were usually small fry, or sometimes insurance companies, yes, but a lot of time they were these uh, little organizations called savings and loans sometimes building and loans. And um, they could now offer, if they accepted an FHA mortgage insurance, they could stretch out the, the term of the mortgage to, to 25 or 30 years, take a lower down payment, and generally make it a lot easier on the borrower, which would have been too risky without the mortgage insurance. So, so that's the FHA. And it was operated, as they say, uh, it didn't give out the mortgages, these other bodies did. So when the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration was set up, they put field officers, offices all around uh, the United States. And the point I'm getting to is these field officers were very close because they had to deal with the, the lenders of the mortgages, but also the insurers, the assessors, the real estate brokers, they were very much close to the real estate industry at the ground level. And so they reflected the attitudes of that industry. And the attitudes of that industry was that the best kind of real estate, uh, you know, and that's like upscale luxury housing, that's solid. You can invest in that as long as you work it out, it has very low risk. And then you can grade down to all different areas. And they were very, they believed that racially mixed neighborhoods or neighborhoods with a lot of poor people in it and neighborhoods that had poor people who happened to be African-American, all that was incredibly risky. Well, there was risk, but they did it in a kind of ham-handed and often racist way. So they just enforced that. So there's the FHA is, has guidelines, and it's, but those guidelines and that attitude and the things they did, which they wrote in racial uh, restrictions on the deeds, or they helped write them, or they approved them, and so on. And they approved projects that had racial restrictions on them that refused to uh, sell or rent to Blacks, very much reflected the uh, white professional real estate industry. Their enemy, the enemy of the FHA, not so much on racial grounds, but on ideological grounds, are the people who push for the public housing program. 
who, if they had had their way, would have had a massive program that would have covered two-thirds of American households. But they, too, I don't want to characterize all of them, they were liberals. So if you ask them about race, they would be liberal on race. But in the implementing of the public housing program, it, too, happened at the local level. And often there were real estate people or real estate-minded people involved in it. And also there was a rule that came out from upstairs. The thing about any government program is it has all these regulations and they turn to Washington for the the rules and regs. So uh, when they started public housing, they'd have these neighborhoods that had, as they say, mixtures of people. They weren't one race or the other, but they had to, the, uh, the public housing authority had to answer to the local government and all of that. So they didn't know what to do. So they went back to Washington and Harold Ickes, who was a great supporter of civil rights, uh, came up with a rule, the racial composition rule, which is if the neighborhood, f- figure out which group has more members as a greater representation in that neighborhood. And then when you build the public housing project, rent only to that group. So they took non-segregated, I think is probably the best way, is not, not integrated, but non-segregated areas, and they enforced segregation on it. That was the guideline. And there were people, public housing advocates, who weren't happy with this and would try to question it. But in the South, they would have lost all support, the New Deal depended on what you might call liberal uh, Southern roles in the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party was a white party, it would have killed the program if they lost the Southern support. So they couldn't, they couldn't upend that at the national level. And then at the local level, as I say, even in Northern cities, Chicago is a good example. This woman, Elizabeth Wood, was at the head of the Chicago Housing Authority. And every time she would try and move some blacks in here or there and just and get incredible backlash, including riots. So again, what was happening at the grassroots was kind of infor- was reinforced by the federal policies, whether it's FHA or public housing. Right. So you have these two major uh, federal initiatives. The first major really uh, federal uh, entries into the housing market en masse. So you have the FHA they're writing in kind of racial uh, considerations into their, literally into their guidebook. And then you have the public housing that has these, the racial composition rule. And in many, in some instances taking, as you mentioned, desegregated or not segregated neighborhoods and, and turning them into segregated public housing. And so in both cases, just like with the racial zoning, where you mentioned the NAACP challenges, you have the beginning of grassroots responses to that in the promotion of integrated housing. So you trace the origins of the Fair Housing Act back to a single effort to desegregate an urban redevelopment project in New York City, Stytown. So could you tell us a little bit about that project, the coalition that emerged to integrate this uh, development project, and its ultimate impact on national legislation? Right. So this is the uh, Stuyvesant Town, which New Yorkers know, but perhaps uh, you have to be of a certain age. Stuyvesant Town was a middle to upper middle class market development, um, but it was planned. But it, it's important in planning history because it's the first large urban redevelopment project that the government was involved in, which then later becomes known as urban renewal. 
and they took the old gasworks area. And Robert Moses, who wore many hats in New York, was uh, in charge of that. And they cleared it out, including the people who lived there. And uh, we were working class people and used uh, tax exemptions to lure developers, which in this case was uh, Metropolitan Life, the developer of this large project. So this was anathema to public housing advocates, and particularly because it was racially restricted, that that, uh, MetLife was out front, that they weren't going to rent to uh, African-Americans. And so a number of different groups in New York is a hotbed of liberal kinds of organizations and operations coalesced around this effort to integrate Stuyvesant Town. And the, the reason they went after that, rather some other thing, is it because it had received government support in the form of these tax exemptions. So in, in the, the legal concept here is that state action. And uh, state action, going back to the 1917 court case against racial zoning, was illegal. It was illegal for the government to enforce discrimination. So, so they're saying, well, if you provided a a subsidy government, then you have to ensure that it's not. Well, it took quite a while and years of fighting, and they finally won. They finally get uh, that rule uh, to to be rescinded. And Stuyvesant Town has opened up, and a few black families move in. Not very many, but it does the the core group that was involved, and including um, Charles Abrams, who was quite a character in New York City and had been a uh, worked with the New York uh, New York City Housing Authority he was a big public housing he was a lawyer for them for the public housing authority and had been active in getting the public housing law passed and Robert Weaver who had been in the New Deal in the uh, number of capacities that worked in public housing and then would go on to become the first uh, African American cabinet secretary uh, when Lyndon Johnson names him as the for Secretary of HUD. But at any rate, they start this, uh, first it's the New York uh, Committee uh, on Discrimination in Housing, and then they go national and they say, we're gonna make this a national effort. And what they're trying to do is to eliminate the kind of discrimination that had happened at Stytown, right? That is the blatant and public uh, discrimination against blacks. I mean, they were also, against uh, de facto discrimination, but that, the, the idea was, and they wrote model legislation for open housing that would remove, to make it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race and other aspects, uh, national background, religion, and so on, in real estate operations, renting and selling. So that was the uh, attack that they took and they were able to spread out across the country. And there were a lot of citizens groups that joined in the fair housing movement as it was sometimes called, or open housing sometimes. Right, so you describe in the article this initial approach that the uh, National Coalition Against Discrimination Housing takes. So it's very much focused on anti-discrimination. But then over the course of the 1960s, there's kind of a shift in their approach, a shift in tactics. So could you tell us a little bit about that shift? Where do they go from anti-discrimination? Well, so what they're trying to do, one of their big efforts is to get the federal government to accept this and to to be uh, blunt about it. Now, it's kind of interesting in 
I don't know if it's ironic, you can decide, but in 1868, 1868, the Congress had passed a sweeping civil rights bill, which more or less made it illegal to discriminate in real estate transactions already there on the books. But it says something about Americans, that that doesn't matter. We have to pass the whole thing all over again to remind ourselves what we're doing. So they wanted the federal government to ban discrimination in all real estate transactions. And they, they have a hard time persuading the president, John F. Kennedy, to do so, even though he had promised to do that in the campaign trail. And finally, he signs this kind of half-assed measure, which says, um, all right, we're going to ban all discrimination in the future. So any new projects will ban. Well, that would take quite a while for that to work out and do. So they keep pushing on that. And in the meantime, uh, and then Kennedy's assassinated, Johnson comes in, he embraces the uh, liberal agenda like nobody expected him to do. He starts the war on poverty. He uh, gets the Civil Rights Acts passed in 1964, 1965. And the exciting civil rights movement is, comes to a crest. But at the same time, unrest is also there. And whether it's rising expectations or historians I and mean, people then and now continue to try to understand it. But there were a lot of riots in uh, American cities. And At the same time, the notion that these Black areas, predominantly African-American neighborhoods, were a problem begins to spread, all right? And Dr. Kenneth Clark, who had been very active in the Brown v. Board of Education case, uh, was a social psychologist, I guess he was, paints this picture of the ghetto as this horrendous place where it's People are trapped. The black ghetto, it's based on the idea of the Jewish ghetto. They're kind of using an analogy that the black ghettos are exterminating the people within it. They, they, they're, they, just the very quality of the environment brings crime, drug addiction, alcoholism, ill health, moral depravity of all sorts. Somehow it just seeps in. I'm not exaggerating. You can read that stuff. It's extremely melodramatic. But... Uh, at the time, people were kind of buying that, and there's uh, the word ghetto becomes very common. And so the uh, the people who are against discrimination in housing have long argued that the concentrations, the ghetto, Robert Weaver actually had written a book in 1948 called The Negro Ghetto, was the result of this discrimination. So now they say, look, you've got to end discrimination as a way of ending the ghetto. And uh, eventually they succeed, Sam, in 1968, uh, after Martin Luther King is assassinated, uh, Johnson immediately takes advantage of that politically to push the Civil Rights Act of 1968, including the Fair Housing Act, through, so they get it. But what it does, it doesn't say anything about ghettos or, or breaking up neighborhoods or moving people hither or thither. All it says is it's sweeping, reiteration of the 18th the act of 100 years earlier that you can't discriminate in any way, shape, manner, or form. And uh, I guess you're probably next going to ask me about affirmatively furthering. So I'll let you ask the question. Yeah, that's exactly right. So so the Fair Housing Act, uh, as you described, is uh, basically, in effect, bans discrimination in housing-related transactions across a number of you know subgroups and demographics. But there's some interesting language uh, in the Fair Housing Act as well. So in addition to that anti-discrimination 
uh, legislation, it also includes two references to affirmatively furthering fair housing. Uh, and so that language is not random, or rather it comes from somewhere. So where did this language affirmatively furthering fair housing come from? Why is it in there uh, instead of just a blanket anti-discrimination act? And then once you discuss those two things, we can talk about what its intended impact was as well. Yeah, so it's in there because the Fair Housing Act was drafted by people at HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which had just begun in 1965. And as I mentioned, Robert Weaver was the first secretary. Robert Weaver had two main planks in his career. One was to end discrimination. As I say, he wrote a book about the Negro ghetto in the 1940s. And second, he was a public housing guy, right? So he had the same attitudes, the, double, the dual critique of FHA, that it was a, a, a show for, you know, it was a front for the, the private real estate market instead of virtuous public housing, and it was racist. And there was, uh, they weren't out of their minds, there was some good reason to be suspicious of the FHA, would they enforce these provisions of the, of the Fair Housing Act? And so the affirmatively furthering, it's aimed, the phrase, the clause is aimed at government agencies. Now it says all across the board, so that would apply to the agricultural department and so on. But what they were really worried about was not the agricultural department, because that doesn't deal in housing too much, but the uh, FHA. So it's aimed at pulling the FHA along. Now there's a little ambiguity in there, and we don't know, or I don't know, if they had something else in mind. And a lot of people have taken it, and I'm, I can't really refute it, but I can't confirm that maybe they were leaving an open, this sort of vague phrase, open for future operations, which they had no idea what would they would be, but not uh, closing the door on anything that they might want to do in the future to make things happen. But at the time, and in the wording of the, of the law, it's aimed at government agencies. I think what they were trying to say to all the government agencies, FHA at the top of the list, is we're really serious. Come on. You know, they don't, you can't sit back and not do anything. You have to take an active role in not just getting rid of the bad language in your manual, but actually making sure that on the ground, your field officers make sure that uh, African-Americans can buy, can borrow and buy properties. So this law is passed in uh, 1968. Let's talk about the immediate term and kind of uh, late 60s, 70s and 80s. How does the act play out? Is it, does it have its intended effect or the anti-discrimination uh, components working? It, does the affirmatively further language spur the FHA and other government programs to action? Well, it depends on who's president and, and, and all that. So it, it does work. I mean, they, they invent, uh, I mean, along with the, their partners, really, the uh, civil rights lawyers on the outside, like the, and with the National uh, Committee Against Discrimination in Housing, NCDH, and so on, the idea of audits, you know, where you have a pair of, of people of, of uh, matching attributes, except one couple is African-American, the other couple is white or something like that. And so they were able to uncover lots of 
uh, cases of discrimination, and they were able to get the uh, you know get something going. The advocates would say the problem was that it depended on complaints. If someone had to be discriminated against, and then they had to go and 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 make a complaint, and then go through this uh, process where uh, who was going to enforce it and so on. And so that's the uh, that's the that's the issue there. And then through the following years, there's a lot of effort to strengthen the enforcement process and get HUD more power to initiate actions, to have subpoena power, get uh, make sure the Justice Department actually follows through. So that, uh, I would say, it kind of waxes and wanes the enforcement of that. But it has I mean, I'm sure somewhere on, on a website of the government that might have the total number of cases that were ever brought, and there were a lot of them. In the meantime, the law also did what the Civil Rights Act did, and it wasn't not so much what its enforcement was, but it set in a very public way what public policy was going to be on this. So it has become widely accepted in the United States thing that wasn't accepted in 1950 has become accepted that you should not discriminate against somebody solely on the basis of race. And then they add a lot of other categories as well over the years, sex uh, and uh, disabilities being the, the major ones as well. So it, it, it comes and goes. Right. So, so you mentioned this in your in your response there, but there was a, there are amendments in the in the 80s and those do strengthen uh, they gave uh, so it adds different protected groups. Um, it also gives HUD additional powers. So uh, the subpoenas that you mentioned increase enforcement, leveraging the Justice Department. Now I, I think in you know reading both your book chapter and also other kind of histories and, and uh, commentary on the Fair Housing Act, I think the general consensus is that it was more effective in banning discrimination than it was in promoting integration. And so I'm going I'm to quote um, a piece. Uh, you're, you're invoking Wendell Pritchett here as a great uh, scholar at, at Penn, but it says, vigorous enforcement of anti-discrimination measures then will reduce injustice, but not necessarily integrate neighborhoods. Uh, again, I think that there's this attention here. There's multiple goals within the Fair Housing Act. There's the anti-discrimination component, and then there's the affirmatively furthering integration. So can you tell us, I mean, in that phrase, you kind of point out that they're not the same and doing right. one won't do the other. So can you right. tell us and more I, about the lack of correlation there and, and what are the implications of that dynamic? Right. So starting back in the 1960s, there was the, the movement, fair housing movement, began to add this different, this separate, this other goal, this additional goal, which was not just removing the barriers to buying and selling to whomever you wanted and, and, and all of that, but to actually create integration. And this is, it's kind of interesting because it is parallels what goes on with the civil rights movement and you begin to have a split, which is that integrationists, and, and I think you have to kind of say, there are people who became passionately committed to integration, but it's a hard thing to make happen. So starting in the 60s uh, in Chicago, which has the highest levels of segregation in the city and the surrounding area, they had a, a, a court case to open up, started with public housing 
residence called the Gautreaux case. And they used part of the court order to try to move public housing households into integrated neighborhoods and suburbs uh, and so on. So it took them years and years to, to, to do that, but it becomes be kind of ingrained. So the, just to clarify, the phrase is affirmatively furthering fair housing. It's not affirmating, affirmatively furthering racial integration. Those are two different things. And when we step back and we say, well, what happens with racial integration? That brings me back to this point, if I may, about the grassroots and the behavior of lots of individuals. Um, because as Americans, and they have, uh, white Americans have become much more tolerant, accepting of African-Americans and a lot of other uh, racial groups. And there are more uh, integrated neighborhoods all the time. They're increasing all the time. At the same time, there's also uh, segregation, if you will. There are little towns and suburbs. The Secretary of HUD, actually, Marsha Fudge, comes from one outside Cleveland, where the population is something like 90% African-American or more. Some of these are middle-class areas, but segregation patterns continue. And that becomes very frustrating to people who want to make sh have integration. So that rule, the AFFH rule, is really more aimed at the integration part because they have a mechanism to stop discrimination. And I think my take on this is, this is a really uphill battle. Going back to the dawn of the fair housing movement, people have observed that African-Americans like integration, if you ask them, but many households are, don't place integration at the top of the list when they go to look for a new home. While there are there is racial steering, I'm not trying to downplay any of those uh, activities, and there are income issues, you know, as we all know, the housing is so expensive, so we can only buy what we can buy, and that also affects it. But these market and uh, public behaviors, which multiply out in the, you know the millions of little decisions that people make, are at work there. I just want to read you a quote, Sam. Yeah, Frank Horn was an incredibly gifted man. He was a poet and, uh, he, he, and he worked in the federal government in the, in the housing sector and on, on the uh, racial relations unit and so on. He was an ardent integrationist. And in 1967, he assessed all the efforts at, at fair housing. And he, he wrote this, he, because he was a poet, he was a really colorful writer. Except in rare instances, we, the fair housing advocates, have been little more than inconsequential fleas on the sinuous hide of a man-eating tiger. And that was the frustration of activists in the, not in, uh, well, in fighting discrimination, but more than that, in, in achieving integration. We have a lot of federal programs that have been tried and yet segregation persists. Yeah, your comments remind me of the Thomas Schelling research, like micromotives, where you have 
you, he has these models where he plays out all these little individual decisions and you can see how just slight preferences get magnified across populations. So I think it's a not necessarily hopeful, but a, a, you know, a very good reminder that you know the, these are very complex systems, and so the solutions are, are, are never easy. All right, so I, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up. I'm so appreciative of your time and your, your generosity in sharing your expertise with us. I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy listening to this interview, but I would highly encourage them to read the book chapter as well. I think it does a really nice job just from start to finish of tracing all the currents that both lead into the Fair Housing Act and then how that piece of legislation has, to, has kind of like carried forward and influences us today. So uh, with that, I'll just say thank you, uh, Dr. Von Hoffman. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Sam. I've enjoyed talking with you.